We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Hi, I'm Karen, and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is July 12th, 2010, which happens to be my younger son's birthday as well. We wish each other happy birthday and think it's pretty interesting that I unintentionally got sober on his birthday. I was born in 1953 in South Dakota. Typical Midwest family, hard workers. No drinking, no drugging, just hard work and doing my parents doing the best they could to raise four children. But my mother was an alcoholic. I don't think she knew it at the time. But I, after I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I discovered that it was not typical for a mom to have a glass of wine at 10 a.m. every morning. My mom was not particularly fond of me. She got pregnant like a week after they were married, moved to a new state. And I was a child that was just a very busy child. And she did not know what to do with me and just wasn't particularly fond of me. I came to understand that without understanding it. It was a process for me to understand that. I was 18 months old when my sibling was born, and then I was five years old when the next, I say, batch came because it was twins. So my mom, who actually did suffer from severe depression, had four children, five years old and under, and I became their surrogate mom the night they the babies came home. I went and got them in the middle of the night. They were under five pounds each, and I gave one to my sister who was four, and I took one, and I was five. And from that point on, it was their surrogate mom. I helped raise all three of my siblings because that's what needed to be done. My mom was always physically quite ill. I did very well in school. I never got in trouble. I was always Miss Goody Two-Shoes. I drank for the first time on my 21st birthday. It was in, and I drank until I was passed out. Now, fortunately, my sister came into the bedroom where I was passed out. As I was vomiting, went on my back and vomiting, and she shoved me over my side, and I vomited all over the floor. 
And we all thought it was just pretty funny. Ha, 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 there's Karen. Look, she grew all over the floor. I should have died at that point if she hadn't come in when she did it with me. And then I just didn't drink. Drinking was not something I was interested in. In my mid to late 30s, margaritas were good. Then Cadillac margaritas were good. And then in my 40s, life just, it, it went to hell in the hand basket. I had control of everything that was going on. The divorce had been fairly reasonable. The stepmother was a whole witness human being, and I didn't know what to do. 2004, I started with, okay, you know, I'll have that glass of wine, and I'll, oh, I'll take that breath. Well, then it took two glasses, then three glasses, then a whole bottle. And within just a few months, it took two bottles of wine at night for me to get that. I had no clue. Absolutely no clue. That was in 2004. 2005 in January, my mother passed away. Then when I was out helping my dad, I discovered whiskey and whiskey was wonderful. He loved whiskey. Then quite case it's good, but it was a lot fast. And I loved that. And that's that was the beginning of the end. Uh, life continued to just be awful. I had two children. One was sons. One was who was in particular into drugs, and I I didn't know that. Didn't I? Didn't understand anything about what was going on. And while this is going on, I'm working. And shaking, and my voice is starting to shake, and people are just all up in my face. What's wrong with you? Why are you mad at me? Like I'm, I'm, I'm not mad at you. So life just keeps going on. My son went into a, a nine-month outpatient program, and in 2007, his counselor called me and said, "Hey." How about if you come in and interview, you know, to see if we can help you? And I said, great, I'd love to learn some new behaviors. I didn't even know what she was talking about. That's how clueless I So I go into this area, have this interview, and say, I'll sign that. My insurance will pay for it. I like learning new behaviors. And lo and behold... My first group meeting that gone around the room, first name alcoholic, first name alcoholic, first. And they come to me and I say, my name is Karen. And they say, okay, that's who you are. What are you? I'm tired. No, you're an alcoholic. Oh, <laughs> no way. No, absolutely no way. And it took me a year to get through that nine-month program, and I still didn't get it. I could take your text. I could answer your questions. I just didn't understand what was going on. And I 
I got shakier and my voice got shakier. And I got, what are you doing? Are you doing drugs? Are you doing alcohol? Are you, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? Nothing. Nothing. 2009, my son calls me and he says, hey, how are you? I'm good. He said, no, no you're not. But I'm not high and I'm coming over. And so he came over and he said, you are not okay. He called my sister. And they got me into a, a lockdown facility for a week so I could detox safely on medication. But it was a lockdown. Here's a little mystery two shoes in a lockdown medical facility. And I still didn't get it. Like, well, okay, whatever. When they did my top blood tuck screen, this was four hours after I'd had my last drink. And my blood alcohol level was 0.437. And they kept saying, how, how can you talk? I don't know. How come you're alive? I don't know. You're the doctors. I could tell my pregnancy. I could tell them on medication. I was walking, talking, and they didn't get it. And they kept asking me, and I kept saying, I don't know. And then it was in a blackout for two days, and I don't remember anything. And I came to, when I came to, I was basically running the group that I was part of. You know, we should do this, we should do that. Little Miss Organizer. And I still didn't get it. So I started in 2007 in August. February 2009, I still didn't get it. I left that facility and and I drank for another year after that. Work was starting to get concerned. My sisters were starting to get concerned, but nobody said anything. It was just, oh, I don't even know how to describe it. I was just in another room. I could still pass your test. I could, you know, the steps. I, I started going through the steps. I had to find out my first sponsor didn't believe in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I do believe that that had something to do with my not being able to stay, well, not even stay sober, get sober. I got a new sponsor finally in 2010. Something happened. And I can't tell you what happened. Something happened in, in my soul, in my heart. And I went to a huge women's meeting that I had been going to and just softening said I need help. And they couldn't believe it. I've been three years of, I don't know you, I don't want to know you, I don't like you, I don't want to like you. Don't look at me, don't talk to me. Whatever you do, don't touch me. And I wouldn't participate and I wouldn't share because I, I just couldn't speak in a, what they thought I should speak in a relaxed manner. And I was just always shaking. So I, I, I just wouldn't participate. That was three years of that. And then 2010, I got a new sponsor who lovingly 
firmly and steadily took me through the book of the Alcoholics Anonymous, took me through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she taught me, she read to me, we discussed things. Um, admitting I'm powerless over anything without a question. I came to understand with her help that I have an allergy to alcohol. And having that allergy just says I have an adverse reaction. My adverse reaction is horrendous craving. This obsession. I have to have it. My body was addicted to it. My body had to have it. My mind had to have it. And I came to see how my life was unmanageable. Power greater than myself. Step two. The power that's greater than myself between steps two and step three. Made a decision to turn my will in my life. I had to come to a point in my life where I had to get over my ego, my arrogance. No, no, no. Thanks so much. I don't need your help. I got it. I got it. You're good. You just go on your way. And out of steps two and three, I came to understand that a participate member of Alcoholics Anonymous and myself is a power greater than myself. And that God has put servants on this earth that want to be of service. I want to be of service, but my arrogance wouldn't let others serve me. That came out of steps four and five. I love steps four and five, especially four. I got to know who I am. I wasn't afraid of anything. And I would tell everybody I'm not afraid of anything, not you. Not anybody, not anything. What I came to understand after doing step four and getting to know myself was that my anger was fear. What a blessing that was. I learned that I was arrogant and ego-driven. I had no clue. I learned that I was playing a victim. I didn't know that either. And it wasn't until I had that sponsor gently, firmly, consistently lead me through the steps of alcoholics and illness. Six and seven, my character defects. Oh, my goodness. I did not know that perfectionism really is damaging. It's a character defect. If it's used properly to do my job or do whatever I do, Wow, it's an asset. But when I turn it into being perfect, it's arrogance, and I don't serve myself or anyone else. So learning about my defects, not that I'm a horrible person, just that I have some behaviors I have an opportunity to either get rid of or change. And that was and all of a sudden, done after I was with those steps, I was so excited. Eight and nine, I wasn't thrilled about making the list and making the amends. I had some amends. I couldn't understand what, what I was making amends for. And that sponsor that I had helped me understand, and she helped me 
to come to grips with what my part had been in a lot of this this action that had gone on. And that t- steps 10, 11, 12, coming through those steps. When I retired, I quit taking the medication. Turned, I was diagnosed with familial tremors. So sometimes they're called essential tremors. And that it's a neurological issue. And so it wasn't. I'm drinking. It wasn't. I'm using. It wasn't. I'm mad. It was my brain is just sending signals that the pieces are not meeting up. But I decided after I retired, I didn't want to take that medication. It was gap dependent. I was taking a pretty high dosage. Just didn't want to do that anymore. I went to my primary care physician and I said, but, you know, it's embarrassing when my voice shakes. It's real embarrassing. And she said, Karen, people don't care. You have to learn to be open and honest and just tell people. And once they know, they won't even hear it anymore. That fed along with what I'd been taught in Alcoholics Anonymous, which was to listen for the similarities. And that's how my friend, Mike, and I met on a meeting during COVID. And I was sharing what my doctor had said that I needed to share this information so people would be just, oh, okay. They could be comfortable. They weren't wondering what was going on. And he sent me a chat. And that similarity that we share has made it possible for us to laugh, make jokes, be funny, not be embarrassed by the fact that when we talk, Sometimes it's really slow. Sometimes it's stuttering. And that's okay. That's who we are. And we get to just say, that's who I am. It's like I'm four foot ten. Okay. I get a lot of short jokes. And that's okay. That's who I am. That's who I was created. And we get to share. Hopefully by sharing this information that it's okay to have this particular disability. It's okay that even if just one person hears it, it's okay. People really don't care. They might be nosy, but they really don't care. We get to be ourselves if we're open and honest and Alcoholics Anonymous. So I have been... I'm very grateful for that, to be able to do that. I'm very grateful that I get to share about it. And I'm very grateful that that I've met Deeper Mike and we get to trudge the road of happy destiny. So I now have 12 years, two months, when three days I'll have 12 years and three months of sobriety and I'm just plucking along a minute at a time 
a lot of days. It's one minute at a time. And I'm listening for the similarities and trying to have opportunities to share with anyone that wants to listen what what my journey has been. And if there's a similarity, we can talk about it. And, and that's how we come to understand that we are never alone when we participate in Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to share. My name is Karen, and I am an alcoholic. Thank you, Karen. You touched my heart on so many parts. I mean, for you, you're just doing your day job. You're just living your life. But for me, I'm thinking you're so courageous and you're so brave and you're just wearing you like you should. And we are never <laughs> alone when we participate in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to quote you on that. So we have Mike on the line, too. I'm going to leave it up to you, Karen. Do you want your questions now or should we listen to Mike and then we'll do questions all together at the end? Let's listen to Mike, and then we can have questions at the end. Okay. So, Karen, you mute. And, Mike, I'm going to turn it over to you. And okay. then when you guys are done, I will just popcorn back and forth questions between the two of you. How about that? So, after a deep breath and a silent prayer, Mike, you can begin with your name and your sobriety date. And you heard the rest of my intro, so I'll let you take it whenever you're ready. Okay. Let me get my timer up here. You do not need to time yourself. There are <laughs> no restrictions on time. Well, it helps me. All right. Um, hello, podcast land. My name is Beeper Mike. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is January 10th. 1988. And I like to say that I'm an alcoholic that sounds like an alcoholic. I have a condition that appeared some six years ago, and it has affected my speech and not much else, thank God. And uh, it's called PLS, if you want to look it up later. But to get to the beginning of things, I believe I always wanted to be an alcoholic. I saw my parents having dinner parties, and they looked like they were having fun and acting crazy. And I had three older brothers who um, seemed to be doing the same. And I have a twin sister who was maturing much faster than I was. So I remained a man-child for as long as possible. Everything was fun go to have fun, play, very little serious business. My first drink was with my brothers at New Year's. We had stolen a bottle of cold duck 
from somewhere. And I had three sips and probably acted more drunk than I was. It was liberating. It was freeing. I was able to act goofy and misbehave and have fun. And I believe that was the beginning of my whole attitude towards drinking. I worked in restaurants when I was a teenager, and there was plenty of alcohol around there. I was the youngest of all my cousins, and I did some of my best worst drinking at family functions. There was always alcohol at weddings, funerals, birthdays, and I learned that if I took a jacket to a wedding, I could sneak a bottle home with me in that jacket and save it for later when I was around friends or wanted to have fun. I got a job at a hotel as a barback, and I learned how to bartend while working in the little hole-in-the-wall service bar in the kitchen. And I was very studious and serious about learning that craft of bartending. And I eventually became a good enough bartender to work upstairs in the main bars. And I was introduced to fellow bartenders with much more experience, and they were working in the day and drinking at night or drinking in the day and working at night. And so I picked up those same habits. And then I learned that I could drink at work. I was the literal kid in a candy store. I could drink whatever I wanted in my coffee cup, and no one questioned it. I ended up getting fired from that job after a couple of years, no surprise. And I went from working in this prestigious hotel to a biker bar in a seedy part of town. I didn't have to shave. I didn't have to wear a uniform. I didn't have to dress up. The uh, restrictions were more lenient. I was introduced to more drugs. And the more I did more drugs so I could drink more, essentially. I was there in the biker bar. I met a waitress, and we were shacking up, living together. When she got a real job, 
working in an office. And I was still working at the bar six nights a week. And I would be in there on my seventh night because that was my world. Drinking, playing pool, the jukebox, the patio where the drugs were being done. And my girlfriend was just the opposite. She had done the job in the real world in daytime hours. And so I would close the bar. I'd call my friend, the cab driver, who would pick me up specifically, and we would continue the party in the cab or in various locations. I found myself one time in downtown in a refrigerator box smoking crack and thinking about how much fun this is. She went on to work one day. Oh, I would come home at just in time to see her leave for work. And we would do a little shot of speed before she left. And one day at work, she went into convulsions and ended up in the hospital. At that point, I rushed to the hospital and I'm standing there with the doctor and my girlfriend's mother. They were wondering what brought these convulsions on. And I had my first dose of rigorous honesty because I was scared, scared that I would lose her. And so my honesty proceeded to tell them what our lifestyle was like, drinking as much as we could, doing speed, smoking pot, and so on and so forth. The doctor kind of shook his head, and her mother, her jaw dropped to the floor. She had no idea. My girlfriend eventually entered a rehab, and I had no idea what was in store for her. And I would visit her and encourage her. And I was like, we'll get through this. And by getting through this, I meant it'll be over soon and we can get back to what we were doing. And I would, quote unquote, help her by bringing pot to the rehab so she could continue living the way she was living. 
I had no idea why she was there, what to expect, and what they hoped to accomplish by having her there. Well, eventually she caught on, and at the biker bar, I got a phone call that said, Mike, I can't continue to see you if you're drinking and using. I didn't like myself when I was on drugs. So I eliminated the speed. Uh, Alcohol was a lot harder to wean myself off. And the very last thing I did was pot. I thought I'd be an 80-year-old man sitting on my porch smoking pot. And that was not going to be the case for me. In my town of Long Beach, California, in 1988 or 87, well, Cocaine Anonymous was rampant. There were more CA meetings than there are Starbucks today. And the thing about Cocaine Anonymous is they said that they were free from all mind-altering substances. So that encompassed everything I was doing. But At my first meeting, I remember sitting in the parking lot, nervous, scared. It was at the church, and I hadn't spent a lot of time in church, so I didn't know what I'd be walking into. And I go in, and there's a circle of chairs and ashtrays and a coffee pot. And I sat through that meeting. I don't know how much I absorbed, but I felt like these are people that I could hang out with. I had no idea why I was there, what they do what they were going to do. And at the end of the meeting, they needed to elect a treasurer. And because I handled money at the bar, I volunteered to be treasurer, and they shot me down immediately at my first meeting of cocaine addicts. And uh, I learned that they can't usually trust the new people to handle the money. And that it would take time for me to earn that trust. And I learned that as a newcomer, I got a chip. And at 30 days, they give you a chip. And 60 days, 
I was living with my father because I couldn't accumulate any assets. I didn't have a car because something would happen to it and I couldn't afford to fix it. So I was biking and skateboarding to meeting. I'm living with my father and I show him my 30-day chip. And my father, who was an attorney and I guess had some experience with alcoholics, told me, 30 days ain't shit. Come back when you get a year. And I think that stirred something inside me to prove to him that I could do something worthwhile and get that year. And those chips, the 30, 60, 90-day chips, were little goals, goals that helped me to strive to get one more day sober. And so I could get the next stepping stone, which was the next chip. I was lucky to get in with a group of people that were my age. And one guy in particular was a planner. He was three days more sober than I was. He would arrange angel games, baseball games, golf games, bowling league, skydiving. He knew how to have fun. All my fun had been complicated before I got sober by thinking it would be better if I was loaded. And it just became more complicated trying to plan drinking before the event, drinking during the event. How do you sneak it in? How do you get it? How do you sneak your pot in? So to do events like those sober was a totally new experience for me. And we had a group, we were called the Lushabies, and we got together at meetings and had dinner after meetings. We became accountable and dependent on each other for support and for fun. I found my wife in the rooms of Cocaine Anonymous, and I was six years sober, and she had 30 days. And I asked my sponsor, is it okay if I ask her out? And he said no. So I asked someone else. Is it okay if I ask her out? And they said no. 
And I kept asking until someone said, do whatever the hell you want. So at six years sober and she had 30 days, we started a relationship that worked. And three years later, we got married. And we got, she got pregnant fairly early. I started working nights and we had two children eventually. And I was working nights and she was working and I let my meetings lapse. I would go for birthday chips, anniversary chips. And at 14 years sober for her, she decided that she wanted to drink again. And that was monumental for me because I realized that I'm the only one I can keep sober. I was a dutiful husband and would chill her wine glass as she got home. But because I wasn't attending meetings, this went on for about 10 years. I had lost my spiritual connection. I had I'd become ego-driven, and wore my sobriety like a Superman logo on my chest. I thought I was protected just because I was sober. But I wasn't helping anyone. I wasn't connected to the program or God. And we eventually got divorced. While shopping with my children, I'm a single dad at that point, I discovered a morning meeting. And I hadn't been to too many of those. But um, it changed my sobriety to attend those morning meetings on a regular basis because you would see the same people there daily, either retired or before work or, you know, you know how we are, people that normally would not mix. I learned that starting my day in sobriety was much easier than white-knuckling it all day to get to that night meeting. I also became of service by handling the trash. I was in my regular morning meeting at 23 years sober, and I was the trash guy. And no one knew how much time I had. And uh, until my birthday, when I stood up and took 
24 years and people were like, wait, aren't you the trash man? Yes, I was. Because I learned to be of service. Um, I do not sponsor people. I believe you can be of service other ways. You don't always have to strive to sponsor people. In that morning meeting, me and my pickup truck moved so many alcoholics because, you know, alcoholics tend to move more frequently than normal people. And uh, I was enjoying helping others that way. And now that I speak a little slower than most people, I I don't know who would have the patience to sit down and discuss the uh, book with me. I I've been told the way I speak causes people to slow down and listen more carefully. If that's the case, I'm happy to hear it. My disability is so obvious because sometimes I wish I had a bum leg or something until I meet that guy with the bum leg. And then I realize I'm blessed that it's just the way I sound. It's such an obvious disability that I tend to make fun of it. I share that I've given up my dream of being an auctioneer. My friend Karen and I were told that we should start a podcast, which in itself is pretty funny. And then we came up with the name of it, which would be easy for you to say. But instead, we're blessed and fortunate to be on Keep and which I'm honored to be asked to speak. Sobriety, it's so much more than just being away from alcohol. Alcohol infected my life, but AA has affected my life and made me effective. I like to say, and I would challenge anyone to find fault in this comment that no one regrets being sober. I came in to the program with this gaping hole of guilt and regret. And through the 12 steps 
that hole has healed to a pinhole size. I hope you can experience that feeling of relief of not having that burden of guilt or regret and learn that being sober opens the entire world up to you instead of being in a closed windowless bar or apartment. I I never imagined the possibilities that were uh, available to me once I eliminated drugs and alcohol. My name's Beeper Mike. I am an alcoholic. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate that. You're absolutely right. You do make my brain slow down and listen, and my brain moves very quickly all the time. So I was able to follow along and get everything. I don't know why you're called Beeper Mike. Uh, When I came in, one of my jobs was I carried a beeper. I was toy crane game filler. And the bar manager knew I was trying to get sober, so he set me up with another job. And that job took me to 20 different bars every day instead of being behind the one bar. And it helped me feel more comfortable around alcohol than I was when I couldn't resist taking a drink. The one thing I'm not comfortable with is a dispensary. I have not set foot in the dispensary because I don't want to know how easy it is to get pot. Good idea. Good idea. All right. I'm going to jump over to you, Karen, and I'm going to ask a parent question. Mike, you can go ahead and mute or you can stay off of mute while we do Q&A. So, Karen, you spoke of your mom not being fond of you, but also having depression. Did your relationship with her change before she passed away in January 2005? My relationship did change. It was before I began really drinking alcoholically, and I'm not sure where I got this piece of information that fits in with the Alcoholics Anonymous process. But that was to say I'm not responsible for my mom and her feelings that she is and she's done the best she can with what she has. And I was taught, not with these words, but the same 
thought process was to distance myself with love. Mm. And so I didn't mean to be angry at her anymore. And in the last two, three years of her life, I was able to go to their home in Cathedral City, which is a suburb of Palm Springs, and do fun things with her uh, in her in her bedroom. She was pretty much bedridden. I put bodies on the wall. Put this straw foliage on the wall behind their bed as a headboard, and I couldn't stand it. So I, she said, don't tell your dad, but would you take it down, please? And I said, sure, I know how to take it down. So mm-hmm. I got a, a blow dryer here because it was just put up with hot glue. And so we got to form a different kind of a bond that was than, than we'd ever had. It was solid. It was kind. It was loving. And when she passed, I did not grieve like I would have because I knew that we had come to grips and, and terms with with how our life had been and we had fixed it. That's very sweet. Mike, you mentioned your dad saying 30 days isn't shit. What was your relationship like with him when you gave him, showed him the one-year chip, assuming you did that? Um, I did, and he was proud. I modeled my alcoholism after him because he was an attorney, and every day at lunch he would drink, and after work he would drink. And he was a very friendly, joking, well-liked person. But when he drank to access, it became embarrassing and hard to uh, accept and be around. And during my sobriety, I would get phone calls from him. And it sounded like he wanted what I had or what I was experiencing. And yet he knew he couldn't get it. He didn't want it or couldn't find himself to get that kind of help. And I heard a wanting sort of in his voice. But he was always very happy for me. You mentioned Cocaine Anonymous. How did you end up in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous? After my... 10 years sabbatical, I was shopping with my kids and then upstairs Pier 1 imports. And down below, I heard the sound of laughter and saw people gathered outside the room smoking. And I recognized that as a meeting. So I stepped in realized 
there was a club there and showed up the next day for a 7 a.m. meeting. And it was refreshing to begin each day with hope and sobriety and laughter instead of trudging every day just to get to that in the 7.30 p.m. meeting, which I wasn't attending at all until I found that room not two miles from my house. Hmm. I love that. I'm going to bounce back over to you, Karen. Why did you want to stop taking gabapentin? Was it not helping? Was it making you feel different? Right about the time that I retired, there was some research that had come out that gabapentin was also used as a painkiller and was considered quite addictive and had led to addictions with other painkillers. And so I said, well, I was taking the gabapentin because I was making people at work so uncomfortable but now I was retired, and so I wasn't going to be around them anymore. And I was taking a big dosage of it and just put those two things together. And my primary care doctor said, it's okay. Just tell people what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I don't want to get addicted to painkillers. Those people aren't around and my primary care physician has given me a solution. So it was part of your sobriety choice to do that and protecting that your sobriety. If I understood you correctly, you were around the rooms coming to meetings from August 2007 to February 2009. Is that a true statement? Yes. So you were coming, but you didn't yet define yourself as an alcoholic. Is that true statement? Yes. I said it because I was told to say it. I didn't know what it was. And it was actually August of 2007 until July of 2010 Mm. that I was regularly attending meetings and I had a sponsor and was doing what the sponsor said. I'd been through two programs and was still drinking. When I when I was blessed with the sponsor I got in 2010, she started with the very first page of the big book and and read it to me. And we went through the pages and came to understand what an alcoholic is. And then I could say, oh, I am one. And then started going through the steps of alcoholics as directed by Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was the healing point for me, and I stayed sober. 
how is your relationship with your higher power, higher powers, step 11, step three today? I have a relationship with, with God that says I have faith. I have faith. I don't have to do anything to have that faith. It's been, God has been, has offered me himself, and I believe he is there. Now, if I know that with that faith, God will help me to get through whatever I have to get through in order to have a life as he would have me have. And that's work. I have to do work. But I know he's there, no matter what. And I know that through God, I have people on earth that help me, teach me, protect me, comfort me, and I will let them do it now because I have the faith that he put them here in order to do that. What about you, Mike? You had mentioned losing your spiritual connection as you left the rooms and you found your way back into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. What is your step three faith-like and step 11 practice? When I got married to my first wife, we were shopping for churches at the beginning of our relationship, but we never followed through. After my divorce, I started attending church regularly. I found that it was a good place for me to be when I had free time. Um, Being in church, I became an usher, and so I was being of service again. And they had a Saturday service and two Sunday services, and you would find me at all three. I had to learn how to pray because I didn't understand it. This is at 24 years sober. I heard the preacher say, there's three prayers you should say. God, help me. We've all said that. God, please give me. And we're given things every day. And the third and most important is, God, please use me. And I find I'm being useful in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, trying to make people feel comfortable enough to stay and realize that their life can only get better if they stop using. And your service to the program today is not garbage cans and trash. (laughs) What is it today? 
Uh, it's not far. Um, sometimes when you sit in the meeting and you don't get to share, and it could be weeks or days that you just show up and you don't contribute, sometimes that's the best kind of service you could do because what you are is a seat filler. You are filling up that room for people that feel alone and they realize that they are not alone, that there's lots of other people going through what they're going through. And so that's the easiest kind of service to do is to be in the room. But I'm still the one of the last people, Karen and I both are one of the last people to leave the hall in the morning, making sure the kitchen is clean and mm. trash is taken out and tables are wiped down. Well, I really appreciate you being of service today. Absolutely grateful to both of you. And I am so grateful of long timers or old timers that keep coming back and filling the seats. All right, Karen, I'm going to swing over to you for our final question. And Mike, you'll have the opportunity to answer it if you want to as well. Karen, for the alcoholic out there listening, still suffering, what message would you like to leave with them? Just keep coming back. I did that for three years. I was snotty about it. I would say, and I just kept coming back. And if there is hope, you just keep coming back. Mike, would you like to answer the same question? Um, I love Rule 62, which is don't take yourself so darn seriously. But take this program seriously. I really yeah. appreciate hearing that. That's my typical last question, but since this is a very special episode, I actually want to turn it over to both of you to make sure that you have said everything that you want to say. We'll, we'll start a easy for you to say episode for the two of you. If either of you want to ask each other questions or share specifically um, about what you would on easy for you to say. <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> it it a lot. It's what Mike said. Um, rule sixty two. Don't take yourself so seriously. He leaned over and to me in a whisper one day at the seven a.m. meeting. Would it be okay with you if I said you and I were going to do podcast and to be prepared for it to be a long one. And and I said, oh, my gosh. And I can't those are the exact words, but it was something along those lines. 
And I said, absolutely. So he got up at the end of the meeting and he made that announcement. Well, by then, people had heard him share and had heard me share. And they were falling out of their chairs. <laughs> but weren't they nice? Yes, it was quite funny. And I love the humor in the rooms most of all. And with, like I said, our affliction, there's no hiding it once we open our mouth. So why avoid it or try to hide it? Instead, we share it and share our experience with it and trudge because it is an effort sometimes to get a share or a message out. And to ignore it like it's not there doesn't help anyone. Hopefully there's some that may be remaining quiet because they suffer like Karen and I do, or they're afraid of being judged. And hopefully, by our shares, and the freedom to share freely, that they will, can open up as well. And I have a new name at some of the <laughs> 7 a.m. meetings, a leader said, and now I'm going to call on someone who has the most wonderful Catherine would be Karen. <laughs> so I shared. So now I get called Catherine. <laughs> Catherine, how are you? And it's rule 62. I could be very offended or I could say I'm doing just well. <laughs> and people just crack up. It's a way of connecting. It's a way of connecting. And if I get mad and defensive, that's just my ego and my arrogance getting in. And I had oh, such a hard time letting go of that arrogance. And I've let it go. I am now Karen or Catherine, whichever you choose to call me, and life is good. It's given a couple of people a reason to come up and talk to me. We, we wouldn't normally mix, but it's stuff like this that makes it so that we are not alone, and we can communicate with each other on the simplest level. And me being deeper, Mike, at one time on our phone list of over 500 names, 40 of them were Mike or Michaels. And I don't want to be Mike, the guy that talks funny. By being, by being deeper, Mike, it goes without saying. If you know me and you know my name, you know how I am. 
being Bieber Mike, no one has to ask which Bieber Mike you mean. I love it. I do, too. Well, thank you, Bieber Mike. Thank you, Karen, Catherine. It has been an absolute pleasure and my honor to help you help others. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.